Speech Pitch by Iska Sack. Hello everyone and welcome back to Speech Pitch. I am Catarina Botelho. And I am Mariana Julião and we will be your hosts for this episode. Today we have the honor to be chatting with John Hansen. Welcome, John. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yay. So thank you for accepting our invitation and taking the time to chat with us. Um, you are a speech researcher. Uh, you are a professor at University of Texas at Dallas. You are the founder of the Center for Robust Speech Systems, among other things. You have been the president of ISCA, the International Speech Communication Association. And I'm sure I'm leaving behind plenty of very interesting positions and activities you've had. So I would ask you to choose one of these, like your favorite or the one you identify with the most, to introduce yourself. Okay, so I would have to say the favorite thing I would list would be students. Um, I've really had the most uh, fun and in inspiration by working with so many uh, gifted students. And uh, I think the thing I, I get uh, the most kick out of is uh, students from every part of the world uh, kind of have something to offer. And to me, it's always a nice thing when someone walks into my office and says, I want to do research to try and figure out what are their expert expertise and where are they weak? And let's try to make sure that by the time they leave and finish the degree, those weaknesses are not weaknesses anymore. They may not be strengths, but we want to make sure that we help every student get to the point where they're going to go off and maybe make an impact in our field. And that I think is to me, the most inspirational stuff. It's uh, I always stay young because I get older, but the students seem to stay the same age. You know, they kind of go through a few years and then they graduate. And I, I still think I'm 20 years younger than I am, but I'm not. So I have to realize that. But I have fun and it's uh, working with the students is the most fun, I think. Wow. Well, great you say that and that you mentioned, you know, how you enjoy when students go into your lab and say, I really want to start research. So Maybe we take this opportunity to ask you, how, how did you start in this research with speech? How, how did you get started? How did you get involved with the speech research community? So I'll say, you know, maybe I go back too far, but growing up, my parents originally came from Denmark and they were very modest. My dad was a carpenter and my mom was a seamstress. So they basically couldn't afford to put, uh, you know, myself or, or my brothers uh, through school. So I had to kind of go and and find a job when I was in high school. And I worked in an electronics company and I soldered uh, PC boards and built uh, or troubleshooted uh, a lot of the electronics side and got interested in that. And then I went to college, uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey. And uh, when I went to the school, I kept driving by this one building that was called the IEEE uh, office. It was the main IEEE office in Hose Lane. And I didn't understand what that was. And then I learned that it was a society for engineers, and that's what kind of motivated me to go into electrical engineering. And uh, I studied really hard because uh, it was expensive, and I had to figure out how to pay for that. And I was able to get a couple of scholarships. That thing that really kind of motivated me. And one of my uh, undergraduate teachers said, "Well, you really like are really careful when you're solving all the problems. We assign maybe three problems for your homework assignment." And you solved all 28 of them in each chapter. And then you kind of wrote them all down. 
And then you gave me photocopies. So somehow I don't believe that you did this. And I would come in and say, look, I want to save my, uh, my original writings because I study from that. And they're like, whoa. So as an undergrad, the teacher said, well, I need you to be the teaching assistant for this class next year. And I was like some lowly undergrad sitting in an office with all these PhD students. And I'm thinking, why am I here? There's no way that, uh, you know, they got to be laughing at me. And I said, well, at least I'll try to do my best. And that early, those early years really motivated me to kind of understand that when you're looking at your education, you may think that you want to stop at the bachelor's degree, but sometimes doors open up and you find opportunities on how to actually make a, a larger contribution. And some of my early teachers at the undergrad level really kind of instill this notion that uh, you always have something to learn. And the teachers themselves always kind of came across as saying, look, we're trying to teach you, but we're going to be learning a lot from you as students as well. And that's always a nice thing. You always think that there's a two-way engagement there when you talk about education and learning. So that's how you got into engineering. How did the speech came afterwards? Okay. So how Maybe do I, I get it? it? No, no. Yeah. So uh, I, I didn't answer the question. That was my problem. So I got, I got, that's how I got into engineering. So to get into speech, well, I was taking a senior course uh, at an undergrad level and the, um, the instructor said, well, you have to pick a topic and try to uh, and, and do a class project on this. And part of it was a literature search and part of it was to do some basic, you know, coding and so forth. And so I really liked communication, probably because my parents spoke Danish growing up uh, and I was born in the States. So I, I could speak English, but I learned a fair amount of uh, how to speak Danish. And I was always intrigued by uh, how people communicate and how they interact with each other. And when you kind of look today, maybe I, I wrote a little article when I was ISCA president on uh, what I felt was one of the grand challenges that uh, may not be as visible, and that is universal communications. If you think about people worldwide, 6 billion people, how many conflicts, how many wars, how many misunderstandings occurred because two peoples could not talk to each other in the same language. So the ability to kind of build universal speech-to-speech -speech translation systems, uh, that might be a technology-type challenge, but it actually has an enormous society-type impact. Um, you can see, unfortunately, you know, conflicts that exist between neighboring countries. If people could speak the same language, uh, I can't say that it would solve things, but it would actually lower the differences that might exist between people. So uh, early on, I really liked the notion of, of looking at speech and looking at speech in real naturalistic settings. I didn't really want to look at speech just when someone gives you a microphone and you're in a sound booth just speaking in a, in a isolated space. I always felt I want to get speech in the real world, uh, in the field, and trying to see how can we build systems that would be reliable in real environments. Oh, wow. Okay, so maybe can we bridge from this to robust speech recognition, which is something we notice in your CV? Yeah. Um, can you explain what it is uh, to someone who is not familiar with it, like for dummies? Okay, so when, when I use the term robust speech recognition or robust speech processing, the, the term robust, uh, when I first kind of started in my academic career as a grad student, the big push for speech recognition was going from small vocabulary to very large vocabulary. 
So people were looking at 20,000 words or 60,000 word type vocabulary sets. But these were all done in kind of pristine, quiet environments. Usually they were red speech with a close talk mic. And those pieces required maybe building really effective uh, language models and recognition solutions that could scale up to larger vocabularies and maybe recognizing full sentences and, com and conversational or red speech. The, the challenges I saw, and especially more in the area of uh, telephone applications, was that speech is not produced simply by talking to your computer or speaking into a microphone. You do it, obviously, when you're talking to, to people one-to-one, -to -one, or maybe if you're talking in, in a conference call or, let's say, on, on a connected video like Zoom or MS Teams or something, uh, you have this engagement. And so I wanted to look at the robustness issues of speech. And when I say the word robust, what I mean is when you look at the performance in ideal situations, and then you start to introduce channels, background noise, reverberation, uh, these might be extrinsic type factors, things that might impact the acoustic signal uh, by itself, the room acoustics, things like that. Those cause a loss in speech recognition, performance, speaker ID, language ID. Now, those are more the obvious things that people in the field of robustness would think about. Channel mismatch, microphone issues, room acoustics. And those have been the core, core pieces that many people have focused on. Uh, myself and certainly uh, many of my students, but many other labs as well has, have addressed that. But another equally important domain is the speaker themselves. And the speaker doesn't produce speech in a vacuum. They typically have maybe a task. You've asked me a question. I'm trying to respond to that. There's also this interplay that might exist between two or more people that are trying to talk and have an engagement. So understanding how, if you want to use this term, how the human is in the loop, how does the situational environment impact how that person speaks? Um, and so who they speak to, where they speak, why they speak, all impact characteristics of the person's voice. And so robustness to me means we build a system that can overcome challenges on the extrinsic factors, room, microphone, environment, noise, and the intrinsic uh, factors, speech under stress, emotional characteristics, uh, health issues, stress, I mean, psychological, physical stress. It could be uh, language issues. Maybe the person's first language is one language and they're speaking a second language. Do they have cognitive limitations? Are they suffering from Parkinson's, ALS, or some speech motor issue? So all those factors represent something about the speaker. And we'd like to see that systems that are built can overcome those limitations and hopefully improve the quality of life and maybe the ability of an individual to have better interactions with humans or with machines. So you've mentioned that one of the factors is of robustness can be the person talking under stress. And you've also done some work uh, about that, right? Can you expand a bit more on this uh, speech under stress area? So this was back uh, in the 1980s going into the 90s, probably before most of the students here were born, I, I, I'm assuming. So when we looked at stress, we'd say, well, most researchers that were in the field, maybe in the late 80s and, and early 1990s, 
you would look at recording speech with a microphone in the sound booth, or maybe you're talking on a telephone, but maybe speaking, uh, producing some type of speech one-to-one. But you really weren't doing anything other than speaking. Now, if you're trying to use speech for some type of command and control, and some of the early applications would put speech, let's say, in car environments, where maybe you're going to give voice commands to your car, or maybe you're looking at personal digital assistance. Maybe you're looking at uh, maybe early smartphones or maybe early computer-based systems that might allow you to give voice commands. Usually, you might want to use that voice interactive system while you're performing some type of task. So you could be under physical stress. um, If let's say you're working for the postal system and you're moving boxes around and you're reading off addresses or names where that box might go, the physical movement of that requires you to um, concentrate on that first task and maybe the speech is the second task. If let's say you're driving a car or you're an aircraft pilot, maybe flying a plane, you're focused on that first primary task, which is operating the vehicle of some sort, and maybe you're using speech to gain access to some type of knowledge or information. So there's a cognitive load that goes into play. So cognitive stress is one piece. Physical stress is another part. And a lot of the early work we did on speech under stress also addressed some of the emotional factors. We looked at anger, angry-based speech. We looked at when you're exposed to background noise and you're able to hear the background noise, you experience something called lumbar effect. And when you experience that background noise, you're going to change the way you produce your speech. So for example, if I were saying the word help, and I would just read the word help, uh, I would produce the H, the E, the L, and the P in a, in a neutral setting. But now if I were trying to get someone's attention across the room and I were yelling, help, well, if I were doing that, I probably would increase the energy, but I can't really increase the energy for the H and the P very much. The energy uh, in the the E and the L would be higher, but I would probably change or modulate formant structure. I might change my glottal excitation. So the spectral slope would actually change as well. So the manner in which you produce the speech, both excitation as well as changes in your vocal tract dynamics play a role in how you might produce the word help, but in an emergency situation or anger or fear or something else. And so you can look at the neutral production and the non-neutral or what we in a collective way say stress, how that changes. And certainly if you look over the past 10 years or so with you know, the machine learning AI revolution, Research and emotion has blossomed enormously. It's really, really a major, major research area here. And I don't say that I or others really started that, but we actually looked at a lot of the very early uh, changes in how people speak from neutral to a non-neutral setting. And a lot of that included a Lombard effect, physical task stress, emotion variabilities, And I think today, researchers in the emotion area have gone way beyond things that we had done, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s on speech under stress and emotion to much more advanced, very, very elegant models today. So, yeah. And most of what you told is closely uh, connected to uh, deployment of technology. So you're talking about actual stuff uh, that is uh, produced. Um, And we are fascinated with the cochlear implants that you developed, possibly because we know nothing about them. 
Uh, and what can you can you tell us more about this? Can you introduce them to us? Okay, so so when you think about someone losing their hearing, so uh, if you talk to maybe a grandparent and they start to lose their hearing, well, one of two things are going to happen. One, they either recoil and they don't speak as much because they don't hear as well, so they become disconnected from the conversation. And so that's one thing that happens if someone starts to lose their hearing. The other side is the person starts to dominate the conversation. They'll lead, they'll basically always want to be talking. And the reason is because they know what they're talking about. And so they can stay engaged. So when you're looking at hearing loss, if you're sitting anywhere from, let's say, maybe 20 dB to maybe 40 dB hearing loss, for the most part, you can function with uh, hearing aids. But most hearing aids are either in the ear or behind the ear type hearing aids. And you can usually get about 20 to maybe 40, 50 dB of gain on a hearing aid. Now, the hearing aid really is not just going to just amplification, because when we look at our speech, our low frequency side has more of the vowels. The high frequency side has more of the consonants. And that frequency range looks a little bit like this. So what happens is if we just do a straight amplification, what happens is that the high frequency content goes above what's called the threshold of pain. So what happens is if you just do a straight amplification, the person's high frequency content is going to sound, it's going to hurt their ears. So what has to happen is hearing aids have to first do a dynamic compression and then amplification. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the two things that you would try to do for most hearing aids. The challenge is you have to do that with a really small processor that doesn't really allow a lot of computational resources. So most algorithms for like enhancement really just deal with some very basic aspects that can run in real time. Now, you asked the question about cochlear implants. Well, what happens if someone has a severe hearing loss when their hearing loss is maybe beyond like 70 or 80 dB hearing loss? In those situations, basically, they cannot get virtually any content out of the information they're hearing. And so usually when you look at your left and right ear, um, in the United States, roughly about 90% of the people in the United States are right-handed, okay? So you also have a dominant ear. One of your ears is going to be, uh, you know, the stronger ear, and one of them is going to be the weaker ear. And you can kind of tell sometimes if someone's talking on their cell phone and, and they're right-handed, they'll hold the cell phone with their left hand, but still use their right ear and kind of write with their right hand. And so that's because people have a dominant ear. When you're looking at hearing loss, people typically will go for hearing aids first, but then at some point, one ear may start to uh, degrade to the point where they can't, uh, they, they can't function with a hearing aid. And because of that, they would do a cochlear implant. So a cochlear implant is basically an electrode array that has electrical contact points with wires connected to it, and it's surgically implanted in the ear. And the main aspect there is to go inside the cochlea, and then when you're looking at your frequency response, individual channels are stimulated uh, with the uh, information. Now, when we think about hearing, uh, if you look at, let's say, your electric light, you turn the light on and off. And so when we look at stimulation in the ear, uh, we don't just pass audio there. You have to pass electrical information. So when the intensity of a sound is higher, 
you basically stimulate a particular set of hair cells at a faster rate. So the softer the sound, the slower the stimulation is, and the higher the intensity, the faster the stimulation. Now, the other piece is that when we look at the inner ear, when we stimulate one set of hair cells, we can't really stimulate the neighboring hair cells because all the, all the neural transmitter gets kind of uh, eaten up, so to speak. So what has to happen is when we look at a frequency uh, response, let's say from speech or from a phoneme, what we have to do is excite one area and then hop to another location, give that information, and then kind of come back. And the reason is because these neurons, when they're excited, uh, the neighbors basically have to uh, rest a little bit. And so that allows us to kind of give the information. Now, cochlear implants, you end up having something that looks like this. This is a radio frequency or RF coil. And inside of the center, there's a magnet. And what happens is uh, behind the ear, you have a surgical metal post that's uh, surgically placed. And inside from that medical post, uh, the, the metal post, is an electrode array that gets surgically inserted into the cochlea. A surgeon does that surgery. And then what happens is you connect this actually to the back of your head, and it basically, through an electrical uh, uh, coupling, uh, there's transmission between this coil and the receiver coil that's inside your skull. Um, and that transmission is a sequence of pulses, okay? Now, the challenge is that there's basically... Uh, three main manufacturers of cochlear implants, Cochlear Corporation, Medal, and Advanced Bionics. And the problem is they're all competing with each other, so they don't really share how they do things. Um, and so if you come up with a new algorithm, the only way to kind of test that out, whether it works, is you got to basically give the code to the company, and then they may implement it but it probably takes three to five years before that algorithm can actually be tested, if you will, with an implant. Part of it is because realize when you place this on, you're delivering electrical stimulation to the person's inner ear. And so there's a lot of issues with ethics and to make sure that you don't overstimulate someone, right? You don't want to electrocute them, right? So uh, there's an expression like if you give the stimulation, you, you, you can throw the person on their back because they're excited or stimulated too much. So one, our lab, one of the things that we did is we realized there's this huge gap between the people in the hearing science space and the people in the technology area. They just, they can't talk to each other. And so what we did is we said, well, we need to build a research platform that allows the researchers over here to basically kind of test drive their code on a system where they can use an existing cochlear implant. So you don't, you can basically have the user just use this. So the device we built is this system here, and it's called CCI Mobile. All right. So it stands for Cochlear uh, Implant uh, Mobile System. And uh, there's a little picture of a guy on there. His name is Kostakis. Okay. Kostakis is, you know, a superstar kid. Um, his uh, dad was a guy named Philip Luizzo. And Philip, if uh, you work in the area of speech enhancement, you probably know Philip's book. It's kind of one of the keystone books on speech enhancement. But unfortunately, Philip passed away about maybe 10 years ago. And Philip was the person overseeing the research in our university on cochlear implants. And so when Philip passed away, 
I ended up getting uh, all of his students and inherited his NIH project. So we said, we've got to do something good. So we re-engineered the platform and named it after uh, Philip's son, Kostakis. So that's where CCI Mobile comes from. And the idea is that if you've got this RF coil, you basically connect this coil uh, to uh, the connection here. You have a what would typically be what's called a behind-the-ear module. This actually would have the cochlear implant processor built in along with the microphone. But we don't need the processor. So we use the microphone on here. This would typically attach to the back of the ear and we'd have the microphone and pick up your speech. And so what we do is we kind of connect this device onto our research platform. We connect the RF coil also to the research platform. And then you can connect any type of uh, Android platform, uh, smartphone, or tablet onto this device, either through USB or through Wi-Fi. And you can load your MATLAB code onto that platform and literally run on this device. Now, what makes this really, really powerful is that there are other research platforms that would support implant users, but they're only used in the laboratory setting. You have to be in a sound booth and do the testing. What this allows you to do is actually kind of put it in your pocket and walk into a coffee shop or anywhere that a person might go and start testing in the field. So we've, we've built about 50 of these. We've deployed about 20, 25 of them worldwide to Europe, to US, Canada, to Asia, Australia. We have some there, Brazil. We have, so we don't have any in Lisbon, but we have some of our collaborators that Isabel worked with in Brazil uh, have our unit. And they're doing research with this. They're, it allows them to not take their latest algorithms and allow cochlear implant users to actually experience a research um, system that might do noise suppression or try to suppress reverberation or other factors, or maybe build better stimulation strategies for researchers in the field. So this piece is kind of like a multiplier. It basically takes people that are interested in the speech technology side and people working on the cochlear implant side to kind of get together and try to kind of come up with better overall solutions. So this, we hope, will actually accelerate how uh, hearing research is done, especially for profoundly deaf individuals. Cochlear implant recipients basically are completely deaf. And when they get the implant, they actually can now hear. And, uh, you know, if you look in life and you say, uh, what are some of the cool things you see? Well, when a mom who hasn't heard her baby uh, say a word, um, hear her baby speak for the first time or produce a cry or something. This is kind of like a life-changing type thing. And it's what motivated Philip and one of the cool things that we've tried to kind of advance uh, in our lab. And I'd have to say career-wise, my first PhD student, Shrivanas Nankumar, he started his work in speech enhancement. Uh, and he worked for several companies more on speech technology, but he was always kind of interested and kind of the science of hearing. And so he started doing some consulting for the United States Food and Drug Administration. And they kind of liked his understanding of speech technology and his ability to kind of learn on the science side. So he now serves as a branch chief for the FDA in the United States. He oversees all communication assist devices for the United States. So for a student that basically started you know, 
building his first enhancement algorithm. And now he's leading a team of about 50 people that are neuroscientists and people that are medical folks looking at hearing, speech, um, uh, communication type uh, systems that you might deploy and help people. This shows career-wise where you could kind of start and where you might end up going. So anyway, so getting back then to the implant, um, these types of things actually allow people to hear. And if you can allow a person to hear, you can get them to continue to speak and stay engaged with others in, in, in the world. Well, that's really amazing. And it's really amazing that people that are almost deaf can, can hear. Because we were actually wondering to what extent this could help people that were already uh, limited in their abilities to, to hear. And that's really, really impressive. Wow. So I, I'll tell you that uh, at our university, this was about maybe five years ago, we actually tried recruiting a faculty member who uh, did research on implants. But what made him unique was that he was an implant user. Uh, he had lost his hearing when he was 15 years old and uh, uh, has only one implant. So that makes it a little bit more challenging. If you try to close your ear, if you only have one ear, you can't localize sound so, so well. But uh, so he had an implant. And when we were interviewing him, several of our faculty members said, well, how can he teach a class he can't hear? And I said, look, just be patient, let him give a seminar, and you'll be shocked at his ability to have uh, normal communication. He can't have, you know, when you're talking with an implant recipient, you have to face the person and hopefully just have one person talking at a time. And they can communicate. And this, this uh, individual, outstanding person, his ability to kind of teach and inspire students was great. Um, we ultimately weren't able to recruit the faculty member because his wife was uh, very interested in kind of staying in the region where they were living there. So he has another job, but we still collaborate with him. He's an inspiring type guy. But I'll say implants really allow people to stay a part of society. And uh, it's kind of cool when you see someone get an implant and they start having conversations with their spouse or brothers or sisters or family members. They really are kind of like, they, 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 don't they don't have a recollection of how someone sounds. And uh, these are kind of like really inspiring type things to see. This sounds really, really inspiring um, and a really cool story to, to share. And, and it reminded me, not so related, but also related to the stress conversation that we were talking before. So the other day, this, our, my supervisor uh, commented in the lab that you've uh, created a corpus at an amusement park, right? to also creatively solve one of your problems. So can you share yeah. with us also that story? Yeah, so, so very early on when, when we were looking at speech under stress, we said, you know, we really want to get real speech under stress. And so, you know, we could kind of put people like, uh, you know, I don't know, in stressful situations, but we thought, you know, we actually have to get this through our internal review board. You know, if we say we're gonna do something, you know, you can't really put someone in danger. So you say, look, what can we do to try and get someone under real stress? So I went to our internal review board and said, I want to go to our local amusement park. And what we're going to do is we're going to put students on these, uh, you know, roller coaster rides. And, you know, we had this one ride called Free Fall where the four people sit in this like little cage. They kind of take you up 10 stories, 
push you out and then drop you. You just like you fall 10 stories down and then it kind of shoots down and slows you down. So the IRB said, wow, it's an amusement park. It's got to be safe. And we, we had like a head mounted microphone. I was doing all the recording on it. And I said, look, I'm going to be, I'm a, I'm a real scientist. I'm an engineer. I need to monitor, you know, the noise and sound level. So I said, I'm going to go with every single student on all the roller coaster rides and all the things. And I said, cause I need to be sure that, you know, they're speaking the words and saying these things. And, uh, you know, my wife said, you know, John, you got to be a little careful on that because, uh, you're not so good when it comes to motion sickness. I said, no, I think I can do it. And after the first roller coaster ride, I said, sorry, you're on your own. So we were just putting the students on and kind of hoping that they would speak uh, while they're going on these rides because uh, health wise, I, I just couldn't do the roller coaster. I, I did it like two or three times and then it was too much. And I also thought, you know, this is a kind of a funny thing. I thought, well, what student wants to kind of go to the amusement park and speak while their head, and we had to like, put a headband on so they so the microphone thing wasn't going flying off while they're going up and down so we had a real large number of students that say i want to do this and so we ended up kind of doing this in atlanta we did this here in in um in colorado and also here in texas so and that speech we we gave that to the linguistics data consortium and uh the the team there said you know we've collected and, and the distributed lots of different audio corpora, they said this was the most fun that we had of any corpus because, you know, people are going up and down and they're screaming and you say, okay, well, sometimes, you know, they say maybe a bad word like, yeah, yeah. So then you have to be a little careful, like, you know, that might offend someone. So you might have to like pull those bad words aside and say, holy, you know, pull that to the side and, and not maybe release that or maybe put it under some other name, I guess. Um, and the funny thing is that I did this collection, the first collection when I was a graduate student. And many of the students that I used were actually other students in the lab. And so many of those folks are actually now, you know, I mean, same in my age, they're professional, they're really senior people in the field. I said, well, I've got your voice when you were screaming like a baby going up and down on this, but I won't play it because it, would, it might embarrass someone in there. But uh, it, it was one of the fun things I did uh, in collecting data. I just thought this was a fun thing. I believe it, it was really fun to hear to those recordings. And, and I'm, I'm super impressed by how you believed you were going to go on every ride of the roller coaster, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't going to work so well that way. Yeah. So. <laughs> so maybe moving on to a different topic. You've been working in, in the field for maybe since the 80s. Correctly. Yes. Um, so you've seen a lot of the evolution of the field. So we were wondering what were your expectations when you first started and, and what most surprised you on the directions that the fields ended up involving uh, into? So I would say that when I first started, you know, as a professor, I started in 1989 and uh, I was really pushing. I kept pushing this notion of robustness and wanting to make sure that, you know, we want to make systems that don't just work in pristine laboratory conditions. We want to make sure that they work in real situations and real environments. But unfortunately, most of the main uh, researchers, especially for uh, in the United States, uh, the DARPA competitions, they're all looking at taking small vocabularies and going to big vocabularies. And so it was a struggle, you know, maybe the first five, six, seven years, because people just didn't recognize that 
you don't want to use these systems just on a desktop or in a lab. You want to kind of use these in real environments. And quite frankly, when telephone systems started moving away from like landline telephones to, let's say, mobile phones, people realized, well, we can actually capture speech in real environments. And that's when this area of robustness in real environments became very, very critical. And so I would say that, you know, over the last maybe 30 years or 40 years or so, the evolution of speech technology moving out of a control scenario like the telephone into more naturalistic spaces has become kind of a major area. I think the other piece is that when we think about early speech processing, the real early researchers, a lot of them, a lot of them focused on speech coding, linear predictive coding and voice compression for telephone applications. And all of those were basically just two people talking. And I think over the last maybe 10 years, you've seen lots more deployment of, let's say, smart speakers, where you're trying to build smart homes. You're also looking at much more naturalistic uh, team-based discussions. So you might say, well, how can we bring speech technology into the classroom? How can we look at speech technology and understand how people work and collaborate and solve problems together? So uh, we've done a couple of projects where we've moved recording devices into the classroom setting, and we've captured voice of children and their teachers kind of interacting and analyzing, you know, how many words does each child produce? How many words does the teacher produce? What's the conversational interaction between the child and the teacher? And this is kind of a useful thing to monitor. If you have a class of maybe 20 students and let's say some of those children are at risk. Maybe they have autism, Down syndrome, learning or language delayed. Then a teacher, she or he might need to make sure that they give proper, if you want to use this, vocabulary nourishment. Okay, you're giving a certain amount of words to each child. But the children that have higher challenges that are at risk, they probably need higher quality and more vocabulary engagement to kind of keep their learning interests high and to keep them on par with the typically developing children. So these are one of the things that uh, several of our students are working on. We have a NSF project that looks at kind of characterizing voice in the classroom and trying to ensure that children that might be at risk get uh, equal or maybe stronger, higher quality type interactions. Um, and so maybe I'll mention, we, we have another project when we're looking at larger data sets. So when you're looking at how teams solve problems, this becomes more challenging than just looking at a telephone. So if you say, I've got a telephone, I'm just trying to take the audio and produce a text transcript, okay? Or maybe I have broadcast news. I'm looking at a news program. I'm trying to generate the text transcript. In most of those situations, someone is reading a teleprompter and producing high quality speech. I'm not a professional speaker, so I have hesitations and filled pauses and things like this when I produce speech. But when people are speaking naturally, they have much more co-articulation and there's a lot of other factors that make the speech technology more challenging. So uh, several years back, uh, I was actually at an interspeech conference uh, with one of my students and a postdoc, and we were sitting kind of in one of the lecture halls, and we could see the dynamics of, you know, a person giving a, 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 a giving their paper, 
There was questions kind of going back and forth. And we said, you know, it really would be good to try and capture this audio and try to understand how people ask questions and how they solve problems. So I ended up putting a proposal into the National Science Foundation said, look, we want to study communications of teams and we want to look at how they solve a problem. So I said, well, there's privacy issues. If you, you know, look at someone that's trying to solve problems, they may not want to be recorded. Uh, and here in the United States, um, ICSI in, in, in Berkeley, uh, California, they have the meeting corpus and they've done an excellent job in looking at meeting tasks and understanding how gr small groups of people might sit around a table. They each have microphones and they want to analyze how they uh, talk and solve a problem. What we are more interested in is looking at when humans just engage naturally and how do they solve problems. But we needed to do it in a way where we weren't going to violate someone's privacy. So we said, well, we need to collect large amounts of audio where their privacy wasn't going to be an issue and that we can share it with the community. So I remember growing up uh, looking, I was a kid in 1969, and remember you know, when the United States and NASA launched uh, uh, Apollo 11 and when Apollo, you know, the astronauts kind of went to the moon and walked in the moon. And as a kid, I'm, I'm like looking up at the moon and saying, there's two humans on the moon. And I thought, well, this is kind of the coolest thing. And I remember in all of these pictures, they're all black and white pictures. And unfortunately, I should say it this way. They're all white guys sitting in the room with headsets on. And I'm like, well, this is the 1960s. They all have headsets. That recording must be somewhere. So I put in, uh, I, I contacted NASA and they said, yeah, we got all these recordings. So I said, great. I put in the NSF proposal, had to go through some revisions, but I finally got the project. I went down to NASA here in, in Texas, expecting them to, you know, give me a hard disk. I say, here's the hard disk. Here's all the data. You can go. And they didn't do that. They, they took me into this room and they said, here is a tape. And the tape, actually, they have literally hundreds and hundreds of these tapes in this room. And on the front of this tape, there is a, a sheet. We call that a heat sheet. And that actually lists the 30 channels that NASA was recording when they sent uh, the rocket up to the moon. Okay. And so each of these channels represents a loop anywhere from three to maybe 35 people could be talking on that loop. Now, they don't, most of them don't see each other. They sit in mission control. There's about 20 people or so that sit in mission control. Most of the people are sitting in other rooms and all they hear is the audio. And so this tape, when it gets recorded, you know, this is a 30 track, one inch tape. It has um, analog audio data on it. Okay. This tape holds about 17 hours of data. Okay, NASA recorded this, and you got to re they recorded it in 1967 to 1972. These were for the Apollo mission, and what they did is when they had something was going on that day when they were sending the mission, they quickly go and try to give some of that audio. And I I apologize for saying it this way, but they gave it to secretaries. They were the only women that were kind of working there, and. Uh, had them type up quickly what they thought they heard. And that was used the next day to try and, and uh, give better plans. Well, the problem is NASA then took all these tapes and they just stuck them in a, uh, you know, in a vault and they were lost. They were basically sitting there and no one ever could, uh, you know, could hear that. And so 
when we went down, they said, well, we got all the tapes. There's this reel-to-reel system called Soundscriber. And so you can go ahead and digitize anything you want. And we said, you mean you didn't digitize this? They said, no, it's all analog tape. And we said, okay, how do we digitize? And they said, well, you kind of put the tape on and then there's this little wheel that you turn and the wheel actually takes the reed head and moves it physically forward and backwards, allowing you to listen to one track. So if you're going to digitize that one tape, the tape takes 17 hours to play, but you can only listen to one track at a time. So that means that one tape, you would have to literally replay that tape 30 times. To digitize it takes 17 hours. So that one tape would take you one month to digitize. Now, if you're looking at the Apollo missions, it would take you 172 years to digitize all those tapes if you're running 24-7. So it's not possible to recover all that data. So they said, well, do what you need to do. So I came back to school and sat with my students and said, we've got to design a new read head that can pick up all 30 tracks at once. We're a speech, uh, you know, electrical engineer, computer science people, but we're not electromagnetic fields type people that can build these things. Fortunately, we had the manufacturer of the read head from 1967. The Soundscriber system is model number one. And the system, it was a custom-made system they built for NASA. Model number two is actually sitting in pieces underneath model number one. In case something breaks down, they just break that. So there's only one of these playback systems. So I found a company in New Jersey that could make reed heads uh, for tapes. And we contracted them uh, to build a three-track reed head. cost me about $5,000. They sent it to me. I went down with my stu- two of my students and uh, they said, well, there's the system, do what you need to do. And so I ended up kind of putting in this read head temporarily and we were able to get some audio off. We could get three tracks at one time. We said, all right, we've got, a, we've got an option here. I went back to the company and said, I need to design a 30 track head. And they said, we've never built a 30 track head. We don't know how to do that. And I said, well, you know, could we try? And they said, sure. So they actually ended up finding and building a system that would have 30 tracks, passed it back to me. I went back down hoping that NASA would have an engineer you know, to basically rewire this system. And they said, well, there's the system, do what you need to do. And my student was sitting next to me and he said, look, Dr. Hansen, I don't know how to do this. And I said, you know, when I was an undergrad, I worked for this electronics company. I mentioned I did soldering. I said, I was a technician. I I think I can do this. Um, The scary thing, NASA never asked me, do you know what you're doing? Okay. So I was really, I was really nervous. If you say, if there are things that you can really mess up, you know, there are some. And the student that was with me, this was the fellow. His name was uh, uh, Tuan. And he was a very, very nice guy, but he was really nervous. He said, I don't know how I can do this. And he said, okay, look, let me do it. So I kind of crawled underneath the system. I'm on my back rewiring this thing. And you got to be careful because one half of the system has the playback. The other part has an amplifier. No one knows what this is, but the amplifier was made with tubes. Okay. And the voltage in there was like 480 volts. And you put your hand in the wrong spot, you're going to get electrocuted. So I had to rewire this thing. And also we're going to have 30 channels, not one. So we had to come up with a solution that actually would allow us to have patch panel 
with all 30 channels coming out and these wires not hanging around. So we had undergrad students help us design this and I rewired it myself. All right. And I told Tuan, look, if we mess this up, we're going to hop in the car and we're driving to Mexico because NASA is going to literally like be really mad at me because I would have messed up the only playback system they have. Um, and for some reason, they never asked me if I knew what I was doing. And we were fortunate we were able to get the read head installed. I put Tuan down there for three months and it was probably the most boring job for him because he would load a tape start the digitizing, and then he'd pull audio off from the previous day, and he was just kind of cutting and splicing and organizing the data. So over a three-month window, we recovered 19,000 hours of data. Towards the last week, the head of communications for NASA you know, kept walking by this one room and saw this poor kid in there, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's saying, well, I'm, I, I've got these tapes, and, and the tape I'm actually holding up, this one is not Apollo, this is actually Gemini. Um, and there's a reason why this one's important because uh, it was, um, I got to remember here, this is Gemini 8. And if you know your history, uh, the commander for Gemini 8 was a guy named Neil Armstrong. Okay. The same Neil Armstrong that walked on the moon uh, for Apollo 11. So having his recording was good. We've already digitized this. So this is not, you know, we're not going to lose anything with this. But uh, Tuan was digitizing this stuff and, uh, the director of communication said, uh, well, you're doing something really good. When are you leaving? He said, Friday. He said, show up on Thursday, wear a nice shirt. And so what NASA did is they assigned a photographer and he had a private tour of the entire NASA facility. And one of the cool things is if you look at this picture, this is actually the seat for the flight director for uh, mission control. And the flight director for Apollo 11 was a guy named Gene Krantz. He was also the flight director for Apollo 13. So Tuan, they allowed him to go in. No one is allowed to go into this space. And they let Tuan sit in the seat that Gene Kranz sat in when he uh, was flight director for Apollo 11, Apollo 13. First time in college, he sent this picture to his mom and dad. And uh, they started crying because they didn't think their son would, uh, would be able to do something like that. So it was a cool thing. Let me also mention something weird, all right? If you have ever done programming, sometimes you have bugs, right? So in Apollo 11, when they, you have the lunar orbiter and the lunar lander, and so Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are in the lunar lander, and they disconnect, and they're going to actually go to the moon. Well, when they're going to the moon, it turns out there was one computer that was used to kind of do the docking, and there was a second computer that was used for navigating this lunar lander. And in theory, what was supposed to happen is Neil Armstrong was supposed to turn off the power for the computer that did the docking. But he thought, well, if I turn it off, maybe I can't get it turned on again. So he left it turned on, but he didn't tell anyone at NASA that he didn't do that. So the lunar lander is moving and all of a sudden these uh, errors start flying up. It's a 1202 alarm, 1201, 1202 alarm. And in the communications, we can hear we're getting the 1202 alarm. We're getting the 1202 alarm. Should we abort the mission? And uh, all this stuff is going on. And a flight director, you know, is saying they, they figured that Neil Armstrong forgot to turn off the power when they, but they didn't find that out. They actually came back and they networked with several uh, other sites uh, in the U.S. So if any of you have ever read uh, the book Hidden Figures, um, 
the uh, book was written by a woman named Margot Shatterley and very famous African-American woman. Her dad, African-American uh, uh, scientist, was a, a NASA researcher and NASA, you know, basically rocket scientist for NASA, African-American in the 1960s, which is not very common in the U.S. Also, if you're a woman in the 1960s, NASA had something called human computers. These human computers were typically African-American women that were you know, brilliant mathematicians that understood how to do the trajectories. So all of the trajectories that NASA used for all the Apollo missions were done by the women that were from the hidden figures. And we're still searching to see if we can get a, we do have women actually on these recordings, not many, but a few. Um, and Margot Shadley has been here at our school and actually held this tape and we got some pictures of her. But one of the things that the flight director said, you know, I don't want to come up with these bad errors. So he told one of the people in mission control, I want you to go and give me a listing of all the possible errors and bugs that are in all the software. And he had them write it on a sheet of paper. So this is the sheet of all of the built-in errors that are in all the software that NASA had for sending someone to the moon. And so this way they had the number and they said, you know, the alarm or the error was a number, but they didn't have text associated with it. So this is a photocopy of the actual sheet of paper that the engineer wrote on actually what the errors meant. And so you'd say, okay, this is kind of old school, but that's what they had to have. Another thing that is kind of goofy is like for the speech communication, you may not necessarily have your ability to navigate. So, you know, you can look at your cell phone and say, well, I can look at my cell phone and say, I've got GPS and something on this. You don't have that on the moon. So you maybe have to fly and learn how to fly by, uh, by what you see on the moon. So this is actually an original training map for the astronauts. This is for Apollo 11. And in here, you've got pictures of the moon. And basically, they study this and figure out where all the craters are and figure out where they need to land and not actually crash into the wrong spots. So these were all kind of things that they had to kind of study beforehand. And maybe the last thing I would mention in the communications, you've got probably about 400 people working simultaneously all on these telephone or on these headsets, all communicating. And uh, they needed to have a quick way to remember what was happening. So they created these little cheat sheets, okay? And the cheat sheet says, here's the time and here's what's supposed to be happening. So what NASA does is for each mission, there's something that looks like a movie script. It actually says from liftoff to landing, these are all the events that have to take place and who's responsible. So, um, and you'll hear it says, you know, T minus two hours and counting. So that's two hours before liftoff and they go through these system checks. So everyone ran around with these. Uh, this is a, an original one. Fortunately, when we released all the audio data in 2019 or 2017, we had a lot of folks, uh, people come by and say, hey, my dad or my grandfather worked at NASA. And we have, this is on loan. One of our, our, our colleagues stopped by and said, uh, this was his uh, card he had when he was working for NASA. So these are kind of some of the interesting things uh, when we recover that original data. Currently, right now, we went back to NSF and got a follow-on grant to recover the remaining Apollo missions. So we're currently digitizing tapes 
and we're going to be releasing 150,000 hours of audio. The 150,000 hours will not just be audio. We're going to have all the metadata associated with it. We are processing through speech diarization, all of the turns that everyone spoke, tags for every person that spoke, all of the text material that was produced to the best that we can do this automatically. And then we also have a small portion that we have humanly uh, verified. So we have human transcripts uh, with this. And so this corpus, you know, students and, and researchers now don't have to go and ask, you know, uh, at least in the U.S., maybe Google or Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft or Apple or IBM, please give us, you know, a lot of data. So now researchers and universities can say, oh, we tested this out on 30,000 hours of data. And it has no constraints because these were all employees of NASA and it's been more than 50 years. So we're able to get permission from NASA export control to release all the data. So this, we hope, is going to be a corpus that will help speech and language technology folks, but it'll also help people in the psychology area look at teams and how they work and solve problems together. Also, people in the speech sciences area, you know, when you're breathing, uh, you know, the oxygen type that you have on the moon, uh, you're going to speak differently. So, you know, voice characteristics change if you can build speech systems that work on the moon. Hopefully they'll work on Earth as well. Okay, and uh, we've had a couple of I had one student. Part of uh, his Ph.D. work was to look and analyze the voice characteristics of astronauts on Earth when they're going to the moon and when they're walking on the moon. And, uh, you know, those are kind of uh, pretty interesting uh, and cool things. Unfortunately, if I look in uh, on the moon, uh, there have been 12 moonwalkers on the moon. They're all men. Okay, so NASA realized that this was uh, uh, not something part of DEI, and we want to have include, or not we, but NASA wants to have inclusion. So they committed that for the Artemis project. Artemis is basically the uh, NASA is basically establishing a base on the moon that will have supplies, primarily water, food, and and uh, materials you need to go to Mars. So they're basically going to establish this facility there and have unmanned rockets delivering supplies to the moon. And then when they're going to send people to Mars, they're going to be a team of maybe four to six people. They'll first go to the moon, you know, kind of like the warehouse, load up all their food and stuff, and then go to, to, uh, to Mars. And so what NASA made the decision that in 2024, uh, they're going to put a woman on the moon to be the first uh, woman uh, moonwalker. Okay. Um, so that's a cool thing. Um, at least NASA recognizes that they need to have inclusion in there. Uh, yeah, I don't mean to say this bad about NASA, but their last mission to the uh, International Space Station, um, they basically sent a team of women. Um, unfortunately, they put, uh, they were supposed to do EVAs. These are um, extra vehicle uh, excursions. It's basically kind of, you do, you go outside and do a, like a walk outside, right? But you have to have a spacesuit on there. Yeah. NASA kind of included uh, spacesuits that were for men, and they didn't include the spacesuits that would fit the women that were on the mission. So that was a pretty major blunder on their side, but uh, um, it, it made some embarrassment for them. But, you know, hopefully they'll uh, address that in their future missions. So, oh, wow. I, th I think we have a candidate because Katrina was very excited about that. 
uh, any case, did you did you ever just sit there listening to those recordings just for the fun? Oh yeah. So I have to tell you, <laughs> you there are some, you know. So you got to realize that in 1969, you know, when when you're recording these things, no one thinks, you know, think in 1969, you had broadcast news. So one of the channels actually is public affairs officer. So that channel actually has goes out to the main TV stations and the main radio stations. So all the commercials, anything that you would have heard on the TV or the radio at the time is actually also recorded on all these tapes. Um, but, you know, you have people working there and, you know, this is just their job. So, you know, you find a lot of interesting things. So like when, when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, when they landed on the moon, there was going to be about a six hour, you know, time, uh, time where they were going to take a, they were going to sleep. And so the people at mission control said, well, you got six hours before they're going to do the walk. So, you know, someone still has to monitor their stuff, but we had one recording where one of the mission specialists, he calls his wife or his girlfriend and is talking there saying, well, you know, I've got some time, you know, let's go to this restaurant and get something to eat. So that was actually recorded on the communications there. This was kind of <laughs> unusual. Another one, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, they're, they, they're going to the moon and they're kind of circling the moon and they see earth. And Buzz Aldrin, he's got a little bit of a comedian in him and he's talking to NASA and he says, hey, NASA, I'm looking at earth and all I see is water. And he says, the water is not interesting. He says, is there anything, could you, let's say, rotate the earth so I could <laughs> see some land because the water is not so exciting to me. And, uh, and NASA responded saying, no, nah, uh, Buzz, uh, unfortunately, we can't rotate the earth. You're going to have to live with the water. Okay. Um, so you find a lot of these little uh, funny things that happen in there. And, uh, and when, when we go to NASA, so when we digitize all this audio, It actually goes to uh, a person, a woman uh, at NASA Export Control, and she's the person that gives approval to release things So uh, for, for the public. So unfortunately, if you look at NASA, the Space Shuttle Challenger, unfortunately, that uh, was destroyed and, and the astronauts died in that. Um, but she was the person that went through all the communications, all of the data, uh, and verified that this could be released to the general public. And so when we started saying, well, we're recovering all this audio from Apollo, we, uh, my, our, our collaborators basically said, well, you're never going to get NASA to approve the release of this. And so we gave it to this person and she said, well, okay, I got to listen to this. And so I'll listen to it. And as I listen to it, we'll release it. And I said, well, for Apollo 11, there's 10,000 hours. If you're going to listen to this, it will take you 10,000 hours. You do not have the time to listen to 10,000 hours. Then when we add Apollo 13, that has about 8,000 hours. And so we said, we got to speed this up. So we created all the transcripts and an Excel file that says, here's all the text transcripts. We create links to all of the audio clips. So the expert control person can just read this. And if they're not sure about something, then they can just click this LDC transcriber tool comes up, the audio is there with the transcript, and they can just listen to that. So in the first month, she was able to approve a thousand hours. In the second month, she said, you know, did about 500 hours. And then she basically told NASA, you know, this is 50 years old. There's really not a lot of stuff here that's really like controversial. I think we should just release this. And so they gave us the approval to release 11. 
And then we got the approval to release 13. So the 19,000 hours has mostly 11 and 13 and part of Apollo 1 and Gemini 8. So that was the first release. And right now we've, we've got about 72,000 hours that we've recovered over the last year. We've got about another 80 to maybe 100,000 hours of, of data that we still have to digitize. Over the past year and a half, it's been really challenging because NASA has all the constraints on COVID-19. So being able to get students in there is really, really hard, um, partly because NASA thinks, well, students aren't as responsible, so maybe they might have COVID, so we're not going to let them in. Um, so personally, I made trips down myself, and I've digitized about maybe 32,000 hours now. And I had another student last fall, he digitized about 38,000. Um, but now I have more constraints because uh, it's harder to get students that aren't U.S. citizens or permanent residents to basically get in. So I've got to basically look to find students that are willing to kind of help us digitize stuff. So um, I'm, I'm being creative, but uh, if, if anyone out there wants to volunteer and come to Dallas and, and help digitize tapes, we're very happy to host you. We'll pay you um, and we'll get you in and you can help digitize tapes. My goal was to actually have like a whole wall of pictures of students that help digitize something, uh, not just Twan sitting here. I don't, I can't promise I can get someone into mission control, but I can at least get you in. And uh, uh, NASA won an Emmy for some of their uh, broadcast type stuff. It's in one of the communications building has the, uh, has a, a studio there. And uh, when you walk in, there's an, there's an Emmy there. So our students, when we walk in, we kind of carefully hold the Emmy and get a, a picture so that the student is actually holding something that was uh, from, from broadcast type stuff. But that's me babbling on. So I'll stop there. That was Fearless Steps. And uh, we're hoping that people will use the data and that uh, it'll help them in their work. Well, uh, we have, we have some, some more things we'd like you to answer. Uh, okay. Maybe it's a bit hard to land uh, on Earth after everything you said. But um, what, what we would also like to know um, is that you recently gave a talk where you highlighted um, the issues in applying machine learning without taking into account the underlying foundations in data. And apparently you are addressing um, a change in the paradigm. What worries you in terms of where this field is going and what is it about? So I would say that if you were to look at the speech, uh, speech science and speech uh, technology fields, let's say, if you were to go back like maybe 30 years, it was really costly to go and collect data, to organize it, to transcribe it and make it available. So data was really valuable. And today, you know, the uh, access to large amounts of data, let's say if you go onto YouTube or on the web, you can find lots of data. There's maybe some issues you have to overcome with, let's say, privacy issues and fair use and being able to get that. But what, what I'm seeing and what many researchers are seeing that uh, have worked in the field for some time is that people are using data without asking some basic questions like, well, how was the data recorded? What is the uh, background noise? What is the context in which this audio is actually produced? And a lot of those factors actually impact, if you remember earlier, we talked about extrinsic factors and intrinsic factors, the room acoustics, the reverberation characteristics, where the microphone is placed, all those factors impact quality. Uh, the 
intrinsic factors. What is the state of the speaker? Are they under stress, emotion, English, their first language? Are they reading prompts or are they speaking spontaneously? So I think today you're seeing many, many more researchers push to try and use different network solutions to try and advance the, uh, the state of the art. And we're definitely getting much, much better numbers. But as our performance metrics uh, show better performance, our understanding of why something works decreases. So it's like this inverse relationship. And it's not to say that people building you know, really strong, effective network solutions don't know what they're doing. The problem is it's more difficult to connect how their solution addresses the fundamental problem of how the data was captured in the different spaces. We're, we've moved away from looking at um, analyzing the speech features and looking at analyzing the you know, malfrequency capture coefficients or LPC parameters, and now looking at large systems. And I think the problem is that we kind of replace maybe the science and the math with just using more data and hoping that we come up with a right with a with an effective recipe for our network system that will give us a slightly better number. And I think if I could say a you know a word for new student students getting into this field, yes, you know, if you if you're looking for jobs in companies, they're very focused on the end product. What is the number and the performance measure you're getting? But during your your studies, if you're a master's student or a PhD student, do everything you can to try and bring in the physics of how the data was produced or some knowledge of what are the problems associated with this data and at least appreciate how your network solution maybe is trying to address some of these underlying problems about the data. And I think if you can do that, you'll have a solution that hopefully uh, generalizes better to other recording conditions. Yeah, and also also related to that, you said you you like students, but I wonder if there are some fundamental skills that you see that are missing in the, the students you are having now, maybe okay, compared yes. to some years ago. So so I would say, you know, this notion here of using data. So I will say we published one paper in Interspeech. This was a couple of years ago. And the paper was entitled, uh, Is the Secret in the Silence? Okay, it was for dialect uh, ID. And we said, is the secret in the silence? So you thought, well, that sounds like an intriguing title. Okay, well, what we were doing is we were looking at dialect ID of different uh, languages. And one of the languages we looked at was Arabic. We had another language we looked at Spanish. But in the Arabic case, we had five different dialects of Arabic. And they were all recorded with the same recording equipment, the same microphone recorded in similar recording spaces. And we were getting pretty decent results. We were kind of moving the solution forward. We were coming up with better numbers. This was maybe a little bit before networks were, were more common. But we saw some of our co uh, co colleagues and, and other laboratories out there doing uh, dialect ID on Arabic as well. But they were doing it on four different corpora that were collected in different locations with different recording systems. But they were four different dialects of Arabic. But they were always getting about 10% performance better than any of the systems we put together. So we thought, well, we must be doing something wrong. So we ended up getting access to that data. And we ran our experiments on that data. And we said, well, we're actually getting a whole lot better on that data than our data. So we thought something is odd here. So we said, you know, let's try this. We were looking at speaker recognition 
And at the first front end of our speaker recognition system, we have a speech activity detector. So we have all the speech that, all the data that's speech and all the data that's silence. So we said, all right, let's do this. We're going to do dialect ID on the speech. We get a particular rate. Now, we also had included some of the silence when we trained our model. So we said, you know, we can also do dialect ID on the silence. Now, if we do dialect ID on the silence, if we've got four dialects, in theory, your accuracy should be 25%. Because it's like randomly, you're going to pick one of those four dialects, that should be it. So when we did dialect ID on the, on the dialects, we got a certain percentage rate. When we did dialect ID on the silence, we increased our performance by 5%. So if you throw away all the speech and just do dialect ID on the silence, you're going to do better than if you do dialect ID on the speech. So what that's telling you is that if you did dialect ID on these four dialects, you weren't doing dialect ID, you were doing channel ID. And so the recording microphone, the noise, the room, those were what made the four dialects different, not the actual speech. And so the comment I would make is this. If you're using large amounts of data, do your recognition or your classification task on the speech, but try to figure out if there's a way to do the same task on the silence and show that you should get chance. And if you get chance, that means that your system working on the speech is probably giving you the right answer. If you do it on the silence and you find that you don't get something close to chance, like maybe it's a whole lot better, well, what you might find is that some of those data sets might be very distinct because of the recording condition separating them. So try to ask some basic questions. Why do I get what I get? How can I ensure consistency in my system? So if I built my system, if I test it out on different types of data, if it actually addressed that problem, I should get consistent performance uh, for the same types of data. So that's true for speech recognition, speaker ID, accent classification, dialect ID, emotion recognition, all of those factors come to play. When you go to get data in real environments or found data on the internet, you're going to have a lot more variability. So as a researcher, if you value as much your credibility in the field, then focus on making sure that what you're reporting is in fact solving or addressing the problem you think you're solving. And then your reputation will be very strong. Right. So you, you turned my question into a piece of advice, which is, which is good, instead of telling me what are the flaws of nowadays students. But okay. now uh, I ask you, um, what are some surprisingly uh, good qualities of, of nowadays students that you wouldn't find some years ago? Okay. So I think today students are much more, I would say they're energetic. They also, um, I maybe use the word fearless. Uh, they're more than happy to kind of go and try to attack a problem that maybe they're not uh, as knowledgeable about. But the thing is, is because now we have better tools. We have much better computing infrastructure. We have maybe larger amounts of data. There may be more computer-based tools available. I think the way that we teach a lot of uh, the foundations in our courses at the undergrad, master's, or PhD levels today make it a lot easier for students to kind of more quickly become knowledgeable about 
the software, maybe the physiology of production and hearing or the language aspects. And I think those skills now make students graduating today a good commodity. People that are really, you know, you can bring them into your group and they not only add new energy, but they actually add maybe a different direction on how you might start to approach these problems. And I think that blending actually allows people like myself that have been in the area for a long time to actually learn a lot from our new students coming in. Thank you uh, for your answer. And also, we, we want to ask, you've been deeply involved in ISCA, right? So, so your contributions to the field were not only research, but also to the community. And, and also, you've been recently, uh, until very recently, the president. So we want to, to ask, how does that feel like? How was it? How was that experience? So uh, I will say that uh, it was very rewarding, but to me, there's certain things I get nervous about. So I will say that, you know, as ISCA president, the thing I feared the most was uh, giving the opening, uh, you know, statement uh, to, you know, a thousand or 2000 people sitting in the audience. We're speech people, but, you know, when you're talking to 2000 people, you could say something wrong and you look pretty silly. So I would say that uh, the thing that, that I really liked to me, I, I, I got into before we were interspeech or ISCA, you know, we had the uh, ESCA, the European Speech Communications Association and ICSLP, the, the, the International Conference on Spoken Language Processing. So there was a group that basically oversaw North America and Asia and ESCA oversaw Europe. And, you know, fortunately, I think uh, one of our most innovative individuals that I've met in my career, uh, Roger Moore, was the person that kind of unified ESCA and ICSLP to form ISCA. And I think that unification kind of brought two different bodies of people kind of together and kind of had the, the, the great uh, uh, vision to say that we needed to be an international society. For me, I really enjoy ISCA because I think uh, they value the science, they value the technology, and they value education in a really good way. There's lots of, of different types of things that you can gain going to the interspeech conferences today, but also many of the workshops, and especially, you know, you see different workshops. Uh, there's efforts, for example, on, on young women uh, uh, and, and career development. There's the student uh, SAC. Uh, Uh, Barack Zisman was the, uh, the chair of that, and I know a number of you obviously are also involved with the ISCA SAC, uh, but very, very active in that field. Um, I think ISCA, when I was president, you know, I was a, I was a cheerleader and a really supporter of this, but basically there were team members on the ISCA board and, and members on the ISCA society that formed the LGBTQ plus uh, uh, group. This, to me, I think really helps tear down barriers and allow people that have you know, a continuum of gender to be able to uh, participate and have a voice in the field. And I think ISCA, they value people, they value you know, theoreticians and experimentalists, they value science and technology people. Um, and I think that's one of the big strengths of ISCA. It's not for profit, it exists because they want to bring people together and try to do things that might help our field, help our society, and thing I look for at least help our students that are going to inherit this community and hopefully take it a step forward in a good way. 
Um, and, and there's another thing. So you're mentioning that there's a lot of benefits from attending an interspeech conference, right? And we believe there's another um, really big benefit, another gain from attending is that seeing that you are probably the most impressive dancer uh, of the re speech researchers, right? <laughs> Can you tell oh, us about man. that? <laughs> okay, so I didn't think that was going to come up here, but uh, yeah, okay. So I organized Interspeech in 2002, and I was really fortunate because Paul Dalsgaard organized Interspeech 20, 2001 in Aalborg, Denmark. And Paul, his organizational skills were phenomenal, and it was really hard to follow Denmark uh, in Denver. But, you know, I had to figure out what could I do for like the closing ceremony. And my wife and I, uh, so when you look at communication, it takes two people to talk and you have to have a common language. You have to kind of interact there. When you look at dancing, a lot of it is similar. You have two people that dance. You have to have, you know, the same, uh, you have to agree on what dance you're going to dance and you have to actually know the dance moves and so forth. So my wife and I, we've been uh, uh, competitive ballroom dancers for more than 25 years now. And uh, we go and do competitions. And I was fortunate because I figured like I got to do something for the closing ceremony in Interspeech 2002. So I was fortunate. I got my professional teacher, uh, Harmony Lyris, and uh, her dance um, uh, partner. He was originally from the Czech Republic. Uh, and they did a dance in the closing ceremony. And uh, I have to say, we kept everyone at the closing ceremony. And at the closing ceremony, people were standing on chairs, videotaping. So it was kind of a cool thing. But I will say, it's one of the things that kind of keeps me sane. Uh, I work a lot. And then my wife and I, we have lessons each week. And it's the one time where we can kind of just, you know, put all of the other urgent things that need to get done aside and basically just kind of concentrate on ourselves and just have a little fun on the side. And my wife and I, we both sometimes get stressed when we go to competitions and someone's standing there with a clipboard and trying to, uh, you know, uh, you know, grade you, but uh, we're pretty lucky because uh, uh, we speak a lot of languages. I, I, I speak Danish pretty well. Uh, and English, and I studied German as well. My wife uh, studied Russian. She speaks Italian and French. And so most of the competitions, the judges are all international. So being able to speak these different languages, you can kind of go up and say, or say something in Russian, or say, you know, uh, something in Danish or, or, or Italian or French. And my wife, she speaks a different languages. So it, it doesn't help our scores, but we feel like it's better to be able to talk to someone in their native language. So, but yeah, that's what we do on the side. Wow. And we know it's very hard to, to reach a level as you can dance, you can jive, but still, what advice would you have for a speech researcher that just wants to start dancing? If you're a speech researcher, let's start dancing. So, and forgive me for saying it this way, but normally in dancing, so I do smooth and Latin. So waltz, tango, foxtrot, and Viennese waltz on the smooth, jive, samba, um, cha-cha, uh, paso doble, and um, yeah. Anyway. So if you're starting to dance, uh, usually uh, the man typically leads and the woman follows. And it's usually easier to learn how to follow quicker than to lead. Because to lead, you have to actually know your part, but you have to know that 
what you need to do in order to lead your partner in the next few steps. So you always have to be planning. And if you're on the dance floor to navigate and not, you know, run into someone because you're at fault if you're going to crash into someone. So when you're doing something like Viennese waltz, like when inner speech was in uh, Graz, Austria, this was like, I was like, whoa, this is cool. And I got to see all the ballroom dancers and the Viennese balls dancers. And I would say this was like amazing. And uh, uh, Gernot, uh, when he organized the, the banquet for, uh, for Graz, I was like, this is cool. Um, so the advice I would simply say is take some lessons. Uh, if you have a partner, uh, you know, it's good to take the lessons together with your partner and uh, agree who's going to lead and who's going to follow. Uh, you can't have two people leading. It doesn't necessarily work. And if it's two people following, then you don't get to go anywhere. So, um, but it's a lot of fun. Well, that's good advice for life as well. Well, uh, thank you for answering our questions uh, to now um, and for the stories and, and everything. Now, there are other things we want to know about you, the former president and most famous dancer in speech research. So we prepared a series of questions we would like you to answer without much thought. Okay, this is the, this is the tough part. This is the test. I knew there was going to be a test. And uh, so now I'm really stressed out. Uh, okay. okay, okay. Go okay. ahead. You can do it. <laughs> so again, some questions have two scenarios you can choose from. Well, others are just open-ended. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Would you rather speak for the rest of your life in riddles or in rhyme? <sighs> I think I would attempt to try and say rhyme. What sci-fi technology would you like to become real? Well, I would guess if anyone ever saw Star Trek, the ability to transport yourself to other locations would be kind of cool. So I would say that would be interesting. And what kind of sci-fi technology are you afraid of becoming real? Well, it, it maybe involves speech technology, but the ability to change anyone's voice to someone else's voice and uh, mimic someone else uh, producing speech that they really didn't produce. Those, that gets me nervous because uh, it, it becomes, you have the ability to authenticate uh, someone in their voice, I think is something that I get nervous about. What would be most stressful for you, a roller coaster or a space shuttle? Well, I've been on the roller coaster and, and although I get motion sickness there, I, I think I can handle that. The space shuttle, boy, I'd love to do that, but uh, you know, I would probably be in a little bit more stress with, with, the space, uh, with the space shuttle thing for sure. And knowing what would have happened to your speech data, would you have gone on the moon to in 1969? If I could have done that, yeah, I think yes, I would say yes. Um, you know, there's a risk factor in everything in life, but uh, I think... The people that NASA picked to go to the moon, pretty much they didn't do it for their own ego or their own, you know, uh, they did it because they felt this was something that was needed or wanted to be done, I guess, by people of Earth. And I think uh, it was one thing I think NASA and many of the uh, astronauts, they were very careful not to say, you know, America did it or the United States did it. They said we did it. And I think it was because it was important that it not be one country, but that uh, it's something that people on Earth could do. And I think that's what you see with the International Space Station today. It's a consortium of many people, and I think that's where research would go. Would you rather have the stress of forgetting your dancing shoes for interspeech or the stress of forgetting some crucial details of a paper on the deadline for interspeech? 
Wow. Um, well, if it's a paper for inner speech, there's probably going to be a student involved there. So I would say I'm under way more stress that if we were to forget something to put into the paper than my dance shoes. Yeah. And as a Texan, how many hats do you own? I actually have a few. Um, we did ICASP here in uh, 2010 and we had a cowboy hat. I think I have about three cowboy hats. Um, I have many more cowboy boots. I think I have about maybe six pair of cowboy boots. Uh, who's someone, uh, dead or alive, you'd like to have dinner with? Oh, boy, I was really hoping you were going to ask that question. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it turns out I actually have the person's book right in front of me here. So this is a really valuable book. I found this book actually in a recycling bin. I was going by and I saw this book and it looked like an old book. It had kind of these creases in here. And if you go and look at the title of the book, you can see it was written by this guy named Alexander Graham Bell. And so when I got the book, I'm going, whoa, who would put that in a recycling bin? And I thought it becomes equally cool when you look at it and it was autographed. Uh, now, I was like really excited until I realized the autograph is not Alexander Graham Bell. It's somebody else. But I need to figure out who that is. It was written in 1953, okay, at least the autograph. The uh, book was published in, uh, I think, uh, 1907. And so, you know, the person I would most like to have uh, maybe, a, you know, a meal with would be Alexander Graham Bell. And if I look at him, I would say, you know, the things he had to try and overcome with the resources he had to try and look at how do you actually reflect someone's voice and how, do, and if you kind of open this book, I mean, you find actually uh, very interesting, you know, still pictures of the vocal system that are still in there, right? And uh, the ways to try and mimic sound. So he has all of the equations that you would use to try and produce uh, speech. And here he's looking at different phonemes that are produced and actually how you might emulate that with electrical uh, or basically more mechanical type systems. Uh, but, and I don't know, it, it, you would say if you looked at what he did and maybe, you know, some of the people that worked with him, you know, in those early days, um, they were pioneers. They kind of created, you know, interesting things. And from there, foundations other people you know came and i think uh it's always interesting to kind of look back a little bit in the past and try to appreciate uh what people had to overcome in the past uh speech wasn't invented in the last five years with gpus uh they existed beforehand so if you're young in the field go study a little bit on you know go pick one paper each month that is more than 20 years old and just spend half an hour and look at it. Uh, you'll, you'll learn something. Great advice. Um, and now, next question. Who's the second best dancer or in interspeech dance floor? Wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> well, I'd love to say Isabel Trancoso, because I actually have danced with her uh, at, <laughs> uh, at one of the NATO RSG 10 meetings. I would probably say one of the best dancers is Pascal Funk. Uh, Pascal, she's very, very good. She danced, I believe, flamenco with, uh, I'm blanking out who she danced with, um, but she did a dance actually at one of the conferences, and I don't remember which, but uh, I was a little disappointed. You were asking uh, when I was ISCA president, did I, was there something maybe that I missed doing? And one of the things I missed when we had 
uh, inner speech. When inner speech uh, was uh, announced to be in Hyderabad, I was really happy because we had never had it in India. And I was really wanting to make sure that we did everything as a society to make uh, inner speech successful in India, because the number of researchers in India in the speech field is enormous. And we wanted this to showcase uh, uh, the advancements that all of the universities and industry in India has made in the years. But I didn't get to do a Bollywood dance uh, in, in, the, in Hyderabad. I thought this would have been a cool thing. And I tried to convince Pascal Fung if she would do it. Uh, but uh, and she said she would, but we figured we we couldn't figure out actually how to do do remote practicing, and so we, we never got it done. So maybe I don't know. Uh, inner speech uh, going to be here in in Incheon, uh, South Korea. Maybe there'll be some K-pop type uh, you know music there. Maybe when we go to Dublin, Ireland, uh, maybe uh, Naomi Hart will have. Uh, some Irish folk dancing there that might be interesting to, to go. So, but uh, I think dance is always a nice thing to incorporate in inner speeches. I think it, uh, it keeps everyone, you know, everyone can, can dance at some level and no one is judged. You know, we don't really care if you're a good dancer or a bad dancer, as long as you're having fun. So the, the, the ISCA sack should make sure you organize some type of dance event. Please do that. We're, we're taking note. Now, something you've thought about a lot since our first episode. Would you rather have fingers as long as your legs or legs as long as your fingers? Well, you asked me all the questions about dancing. So I think I need my legs more than my fingers. So I would rather have legs as long as my fingers probably would help me in dancing a bit, I guess. So yeah, uh, just to give some, some context, uh, John very kindly advertised and encouraged uh, everyone to listen to our podcast since the first episode. And we asked this question to Iona and apparently uh, John was a bit disturbed with this kind of thing. Well, I was nervous that I was going to get that question. I figured I have to have an answer and I don't, I, I still, I still don't know what the right answer is, but you know, maybe there isn't a right one. So. I think that's the, the beauty of it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much, John, for joining us today and for this really great conversation. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, um, I hope uh, these podcasts uh, help uh, not just young researchers, but people in the field uh, appreciate uh, the different uh, teams that are working worldwide, both at universities and companies to try and address uh, challenges in speech communication. And uh, Hopefully, uh, if you're a company, see if you can open up a door and have an internship options for your students, for students coming from universities. And if you're a faculty member, you know, keep writing those proposals. Let's get more funding to support our students and make sure that they can go through and, and get their degrees. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you for this amazing lecture. And thanks to everyone who's listening to this episode of Speech Pitch. And stay tuned for future episodes as we might interview your favorite speech researcher. Speech Pitch by Iska Sack